Hello and welcome to the Flavorwire podcast. I am your host, Tom Hawking. Um, we are here to discuss all matters culture related since the unspecified time that we last did this. Uh, I am here with my co-host, Mose Halperin. Mose, how are we? I'm very wet. Very wet. Excellent. Yeah. Yes, we, we sent Mose out to buy whiskey in the rain. Um, he has gone on above and beyond rain. for yeah. the sake of the team. I am also joined by Sarah Seltzer. Hello. Alison Herman. Hi. And Judy Berman. And we are going to commence casting the pod this week uh, by discussing Trevor Noah on The Daily Show. Do we like Trevor Noah? We do, I think, with reservations. Um, he is, we're finding him pretty charismatic. We're thinking that he's kind of growing into the job already. Um, and, you know, at least I am sort of excited to see where he goes. And I also am just going to have to say that I think he's extremely attractive. <laughs> Everybody I know who's been watching it has made the same comment. And it wasn't something that we necessarily noticed but when he just when John Stewart first tapped him. But it's his charisma as a performer and a comedian that's making everyone say, he's really hot. So and it's the dimples too, right? It's the dimples. And the dimples. And the dimples. And the dimples. I think it's very telling also that the first, you know, bite-sized component of his show that I've seen go viral in the way that we're accustomed to seeing Jon Stewart bits go viral was one that closed out the, or it was his last opening segment that he did last night about how Donald Trump uh, makes perfect sense as a presidential candidate if you think of him as an African presidential candidate. And then he proceeded to roll a bunch of tape of Robert Mugabe and um, <laughs> South African president and basically making statements that alarmingly aligned with Trump's. And I think it's the best example of what Trevor Noah has said that he wants to bring to The Daily Show, which is a more international perspective. It's not commenting on American politics as an American. And it's what distinguished him from other frontrunners. Although mm. I think I should note that the one thing I'm actually most looking forward to about the new Daily Show is one that hasn't really been ruled out yet, which is their new digital focus. They brought in Baratunde Thurston from The Onion. They brought in uh, Anthony DeRosa, who's head up, who's headed up journalistic startups before. And that's kind of the sh- part of the show I'm most curious about and has yet to be presented to the public. Mm. I like that he laughs at his own jokes sometimes, even the really juvenile bad ones that don't land so well. That's yeah. really very adorable. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for laughing at your own jokes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I also feel like we're seeing a little bit of what The Daily Show could be without sort of, I don't know, anger being the main method mm. of delivery. Like, I thought Jon Stewart was great for a really long time, but after a while you could sort of predict how he would respond to everything. Um, and it was always... He would eviscerate everything. Yeah, right. He, he eviscerated everything. <laughs> Whereas with Trevor Noah, it seems like, you know, maybe he's not doing things that get big headlines the next day, um, or at least not so far for the most part, but he's sort of pointing out the absurdity of things, he's making good comparisons, he's, you know, I, I feel like I'm thinking more than being like, yeah. And I think yeah. that bears some similarity to the critical response that Colbert's gotten, right? Like, I think Colbert's mostly shied away from the viral moments that distinguish someone like Jimmy Fallon and is mostly like very cerebral. Yeah, my problem with with Stuart was always that 
Yeah, ultimately he's preaching to the choir, no? Like, if, if you agree with him, then you find him eviscerating whatever the, the topic of the week is, you know, very entertaining, and it, it ties in with your views, and it makes you feel smart, and etc. Um, I, I don't know if it ever went any way towards appealing to people who didn't agree with him already, and I think Trevor Noah's take so far seems to be more inclusive, I guess. Definitely. I think one of the strangest... I, I totally agree with you in that sense about John Stewart was that, yeah, he always brought with it this sort of dictatorial sense of how the audience was supposed to emote with him. Mm. And in the first show that Trevor Noah did, I was concerned because that was sort of something that I became very familiar with with The Daily Show, was this is where I'll go to laugh and have these emotions that mimic Jon Stewart's own. Um, And I didn't find myself going to those places with Trevor Noah because he he wasn't going to those places. He sort of maintains this very sly, I just farted, (laughs) <laughs> like sense of like self-deprecation but also he's so attractive that he could just fart like the whole time and it'd be fine um and and yeah so it's it's exactly the same thing you're you're going to probably not have the same emotional roller coaster that you had with the other show but mm. maybe that is the best thing and if, and if that means us not having to write about it daily in, in our news section or whatever then you know that's great too because it it means that there's probably more to it than what 200 words can sound. Just so, sound much, yeah, definitely. I think if you end up thinking about something rather than feeling like you have this cathartic experience, the problem with having a cathartic experience is it feels like you resolved something and then it's over rather than when you think something through, then you can, you know, take action or develop your own opinion or something. Hmm. Hmm, definitely. Do we, do we have any other thoughts on Trip now? I think a lot of us will be continuing to watch The Daily Show again for the first time in a long time. I'm not yeah. catching it every night, but I am yeah. really considering trying to catch it whenever I'm home and you know around at 11 o'clock, so that's something new. And the same, same thing with Colbert, actually. I, I, I was a huge fan of Colbert's show, but I had stopped watching yeah. it regularly towards the end, and now I'm really interested to see what he does when I'm, when I'm in front of the TV, and I, I want to you know, watch it, so it's cool, it's exciting. Just think the newness is, you know, there's some risk there, and that makes mm. it more interesting as a viewer. Yeah. The longer that he's on the show, the deeper his dimples will get, too. So. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> it's all true. Um, well, also in television highlights this week, uh, Empire. We love Empire. Yes. Um, we, we all lost our collective shit when Cookie emerged from a gorilla costume last week. Um, mm. <laughs> and, and things have continued to be as gloriously absurd as we might expect this week. Gang. I think this season is sort of distinguished by its use of guest stars, which I thought was really interesting, figured really prominently in a pre-air, like, Hollywood Reporter, how the hell are they going to incorporate the 35 people who've now signed on? And the answer is they're going to miscast them in the case of Chris Rock, and flame them out very quickly, also in the case of Chris Rock, and now, I guess, Ludacris. Um... But I, I think in other cases, it's just been really fun and added to the camp factor of the show. I, I was sort of okay with Chris Rock being this totally over-the-top, subtly cannibalistic, totally unbelievable as a hardcore drug lord character. <laughs> I thought he was fine, actually. Yeah, yeah, I thought he was fine, too. That's, I, I don't see what all the fuss has been. I mean, against, the, you know, it's, it's not like the rest of the show is known for its verisimilitude. No, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think either way, if you have someone who is that famous 
on your screen. You're not really going to believe them as whatever they're supposed to be yeah. anyway. Although you do sort of get these random flashes of this second week. I mean, I think we all expected the premiere something like that. One after the other after the other yeah, of yeah, Andre Leon sure. Talley and Al Sharpton and Don <laughs> <laughs> um, But then you get something a little subtler. Like in the second episode, you get a very brief flashback of Kelly Rowland as Lucius's mother. And it looks like they're actually going to have her do some emotional heavy lifting. Yeah. But it's also kind of more surreptitious and less, oh my god, it's so-and-so yeah. than Chris Rock was, I guess. It really is the. It really brings the pleasures of a soap opera. To yeah, the absolutely. Because in in some ways it doesn't even matter what happens. Although the plot is everything, it's like the plot is everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah, totally. Which is really really fun. Um, it's kind of like Scandal, and the plot just yes. keeps taking more and more ridiculous twists, and it's you're just like, like the, yeah, okay. The same five chess pieces just being moved around yeah. constantly. So like one, you know, like Cookie hates Lucius, and then Cookie and Lucius are allied, and then Lucius hates one yeah. of the sons, and then the sons hate each other, and the sons come back together. Um, so it doesn't really. Ma- I mean, you can skip an episode almost and just sort of pick up and yeah. figure out where it's going. Um, but at the same time, there are also you know some heavy issues. Like it's just it's just sort of a perfect mix. Um, mm. And it is this really, this really, um, you don't, you know, it's somewhere in between these, because we have this TV landscape where there are sitcoms and like reality TV shows, and then there are these dramas that are so intense, you have to catch every second yeah. of it. And, you know, they have the anti-heroes and the anti-heroines and everything's super dark and a reflection of our society. And there's nothing that's really in between. And this is sort of a perfect in between. I yeah, think. I feel like Empire is like all of those things at various moments. Exactly. I also just, I love the pacing. I love that every single thing that was set up in the first season finale as a potential season-long conflict was resolved by the 45-minute mark of the premiere. Absolutely. I am concerned by the decline of Terrence Howard's rapping skills, though. He killed it in Hustle and Flow. He was, like, really good. And, and <laughs> I forgot that he wasn't, his medicine was being denied to him by the cruel <laughs> wardens at the channel. Yeah, seriously. So we love Empire, in conclusion. We do. We love Empire. We can't wait to see what ridiculous things are going to happen this week. Yep, and it is continuing to do extremely well in the ratings. Although I think the second episode was the first ever decline, although by Empire standards, it's still outperforming basically everything else on TV. Uh, It's good to know that network television still has something like that in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, I'm going to throw to Mose because you wanted to discuss LGBT films, I think. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I would love to discuss, basically in the last two weeks we've had, these films basically got condemned before they came out. Free Held, which just came out today, um, much less so, but I think immediately once uh, news of it was released, once the trailers came out, it was very identifiable as a, a certain type of film vying for a certain type of thing of which we don't speak. Um, which is an award that happens in March. Yes, um, begins with the year, It is flavor wire year. policy to not yes. speak its name until Thanksgiving. Yes. <laughs> um, the sort of funnier thing about Stonewall is that it is just so so far beyond um, ever, like even potentially being in like competition for anything like that, just because it is so 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 dreadful. Um, whereas Free Held itself, if it had perhaps gotten more buzz beforehand. Um, could have maybe become something that I have a feeling that it probably won't. Yeah. And um, do, you, do you think these are sort of indicative of some sort of wider trend in LGBT cinema? Yes, I think right now, to a certain extent, there are other films that are being made, but the main ones that you're seeing with actors um, 
with really big names are usually ones that involve some form of inspiration. Right. Um, yeah, some form the, of... Uh, the triumph of the oppressed over the... Exactly, yeah. exactly. The thing with these movies is it's really hard to tell exactly who they're trying to appeal to because I don't think, uh, as much as it might be good for them to be preached to to a certain extent, I don't think straight cis audiences necessarily are going to be like flocking out to movies to think that they're learning a humorless lesson. Um, and, uh, the LG- they- and the LGBT community has already to... Uh, really great extent moved on. It's it's very tiresome seeing movies, especially ones that aren't perspicacious like in in um, in matters of like interior in the interior lives of the characters ab- about psychology or what's going on and they're all about just the end game of and this finally happened because mm. these characters persevered and they made it happen. I mean um, that, that's a very sort of American mythology in general. It is. It is. But I guess as of now, there's there's very little in terms of mainstream LGBT cinema that doesn't do that. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like kind of a classic case of when you take something that belongs to a subculture and you attempt to make it palatable to the mainstream, and then you just kind of end up denuding it of yeah. anything with personality yeah. that would attract either crowd. It's a very much a least common denominator. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Really, they're sexless. But they're still trying to appeal to the LGBT community by by providing you know this tepid history like historical narrative of something that might matter to them, but no one really wants to see set in this particular uh, colorless quality. So yeah. Where do you, how do you think like sort of big LGBT films of the last decade like Milk and Brokeback would? would look today if we, you know, like, given all this, this, like, mini-boom that we're having now of, like... The thing was, was now I think that they're just sort of on autopilot. Yeah. Like, those were actually, those were actually good, good movies. Good movies, yeah. 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 Mm. And, and now they're just sort of these bare replicas of those things that yeah, were I mean, actually that... a lot better and really considered what it meant to be a minority right. to an extent, yeah. I think. I didn't see Milk partially because it seemed to me, I obviously cannot judge it, as kind of a boilerplate biopic and therefore I didn't want to see it. It really wasn't. Yeah, no, it wasn't at the time. But I mean, Brokeback, which I really enjoyed, is great because it's so specific. It's not about, you know, the struggle for gay rights. It's about these two very developed characters in this very specific world that isn't really making an effort to connect to anything. It is about their relationship and adversarial forces make their way in, but they're not the driving force of the film. Yeah. Um, And pushing against those is not either. And I think, yeah, that's what made that film so special. And again, with Freeheld, for example, uh, Julianne Moore and Ellen Page court one another for about a half hour. And then, so first there's the courtship, then there's the cancer, then from the cancer is the need to get the pension. Um, And it is based on a true story. So the, this litany of tragedies is something that like can happen, but seeing it rendered in uh, particularly saccharine filmmaking is mm. m- makes it seem uh, all the more ridiculous that it's like oh there's another terrible thing. Yeah. Like, do, yeah. do we think this is just a case of you know those the films that you mentioned like Milk and Brokeback Mountain having done well and then Hollywood being like oh god people like this sort of thing maybe we should do it again but not really doing it in a very sort of milk toast kind of way. Totally. I think that that's part of it. I think another part is, I, l- even to a greater extent, I think a lot of, Brokeback Mountain aside, because that was just based on a piece of short fiction, mm. um, 
I think it's really hard for people to imagine when screenwriters are just writing something and they're writing a character who isn't defined by their sexual identity heterosexual, neutral, so they're going to make those characters heterosexual. Whereas mm. if you have a, like, a character based on a true story and that person was gay, that's where you're going to find it. And then those true stories are usually ones about some sort of movement. Mm. And that is where I think a lot of this comes along. And that's mm. where you get Stonewall, and that's where you get even... Um, uh, God, what's the... The Danish girl. Yeah. Um, which is coming out. I don't really know what the deal with About Ray is, but I... It seems like that will be sort of... In, it's about Ray. It's about Ray, is the deal. And I know we talked about it already, but shout out to Grandma for not being that kind of movie <laughs> at all. It's true. You know, it's worth shouting out. That it is worth shouting you know, out. Yeah. They're not all like that. Which I think we mentioned this in our last podcast, but Lily Tomlin's character is a lesbian poet. And it's just sort of a matter of fact. It's, it's, um, it's not the defining characteristic of her life mm. it's just part of her character yeah it's taken very much in stride in a really great way um we have a very special is it feminist this week <laughs> sarah is it feminist <laughs> that was really special <laughs> that was, that you guys was, put a lot of pressure on me <laughs> you said that you rose to the you occasion you depending on me for the jingle so i've been you nervous do, you do it better time. every time <laughs> um would you like to explain what we're discussing this week on Is It Feminist? I don't even know if I can, but I'm going to try. So there have been not one, but a number of articles in the <laughs> press uh, recently about a new fashion trend. It's called the pussy bow. Um, but it's not what you think. <laughs> it's um, these blouses that have a tie, like a bow tie Yeah, there's sometimes <laughs> called like secretary blouses. Secretary blouses. Tie, tie front blouses, huh. and apparently there's something anti-feminist about them. Is it, is it the name? No, I think it's because, and uh, others can correct me if I'm wrong, that they came into fashion as a way to sort of feminize the workplace attire, like the workplace uniform for women, so that you'd be less threatening. Um, so it was like, wear a skirt and a blouse with a pussy bow, and like the men in your office won't think you're trying to emasculate them. Um, so like, don't be like Hillary Clinton, don't wear a pantsuit. <laughs> I guess that is basically the sense that I got from the discussion. So apparently that, that makes them loathed by feminists. Although I, I don't think either article that I read was actually able to find a single feminist who had an actual objection to them. It was or just a, really an opinion at all. Opinion at all, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so where do we think these pieces have come from then? I think it's, a, it's about feminism being like this hot button thing now. Yes. That like if you put feminists in your headline, you're going to get more clues. Throw it at any inanimate object. Crazy. <laughs> Shit, we need something controversial like, in feminist. Like, oh, writing about fashion. Like, how can we make our fashion article get more viewers? Yes. Let's put the word feminist in our headline. That's, you know, that's very different from how it might have been. Totally. And in general, like, <laughs> you know, is, is fashion feminist? No. Like, it's, it's an industry designed to make women buy things based on insecurities. Like, you know, for saying that. That's, you know, I mean, it's fine. It's, it's a settled question. Like, yep. we're all susceptible to it to different degrees, but, like, you know, like, to get that granular, 
seems so stupid. I mean, yeah, it's worth <laughs> noting we are we are approaching the precise one year mark of Karl Lagerfeld staging a fake feminist protest on his own runway. Yeah. But like, I think it's hilarious that this is. It's not even the fashion designers who were inserting themselves into this debate. It was the media imposing a fake controversy onto an inanimate object. That, that's not like the media. <laughs> oh, not at all. <laughs> Oh, that media. Oh, that media. <laughs> we, we would never do such a thing here at Flavor Life. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of made me want to go out and try on one of those blouses because I was like, well, I don't know. Like, what's the big deal with them? Maybe they're crazy. Yeah. Like, maybe they're, you know, going to, like... But you would have sensed an immediate feeling of self-loathing the second the, you put it on. Maybe I'll feel a sense of love. Maybe I'll turn into Joan Holloway. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I would it's be significantly less threatened by you if you were to wear a shirt with a pussy bow on it. All right, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it would really be better. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wear suits. Out with the torn jeans <laughs> in with the pussy bow. So, Sarah Seltzer, pussy bows, are they feminist? It's not even worth asking the question. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a no comment. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to the Flavor <laughs> podcast. Uh, we will be back after another unspecified interval to do this again. Um, a couple of weeks, we suspect, so long as I don't get sick again, but we shall see. But thank you for listening, and until next time, this has been the Flavor Wire Podcast, signing off.